So I've spent all day podcasting and I'm not happy with what I've recorded somehow. So I'm going to just relax and record this more stream of consciousness episode today because it's just too much for me, I think, to be a culture critic all the time. On one hand, I'm really cut out for it. I do feel provocative in nature and inquisitive and vocal and expressive. But I, I do think I feel worn down, beaten down by what I think of as this cultural toxin of woke ideology. What I mean by that is that you know, ever since I moved to Berlin, even just like the impetus to leave New York was largely driven by the fact that I didn't feel a sense of belonging to my friend groups and work groups there. I could feel this like PC policing and like intense demand of inclusivity and stuff like taking over in 2012-13. And then I started really observing it once in Berlin, starting in 2014, when it really just ramped up. And it was about everything. We didn't call it woke back then. Even PC felt passe. And it was it was like unnameable even then. But, you know, Trayvon Martin's death led to BLM really starting. This was during like mass immigration to Europe amid continued uh, terrorist attacks in France and also in Germany and elsewhere. And I just felt this sense of like alienation, which is such a big word. It's a meaning. It's so, it's like, it almost encapsulates everything to me. It's like the number one problem of the world right now. And it has been for a while, I think, but I feel specifically alienated in this kind of political cultural identity thing where I am a liberal. I've always been a liberal. And that could mean leftist in the States, but it could also just mean like classical liberal from the Enlightenment and the Founding Fathers, people that believe in the individual spirit and maximum freedom and only put constraints on that freedom for the greater good and for the betterment of maximizing even more freedom, you know? And I just fully believe that more and more every day to the point of being a libertarian. And yet I feel like everyone around me has like changed and like the definitions have changed. It's alienating, you know, now the people that I grew up with who I thought we were all kind of on the same boat are basically just Marxists. And that's not being, that's not a liberal. Liberals are not Marxists. Marxists are fundamentally different from liberals. Marxists and neo-Marxists see the world through a lens of oppression and want to tear down the liberal project because it's inherently oppressive to certain groups. Marx would say that those groups were the proletariat, the workers, and neo-Marxists would say that those groups are, you know, all the things that we can easily name, women, minorities, black people, um, specifically um, Muslims, uh, disabled people or handicapped people, I'm not sure which word is PC, uh, trans people, obviously, and on and on. And it's like so sick to see the world like that, I think. And yet it's 
de rigueur. It's like the default way that almost everyone I know sees the world. Like people just take for granted that we live in a, an oppressive patriarchy. And it's crazy. Like I guess I, I feel like that's crazy, but I'm made to feel like the crazy one. Like people walk out on conversations with me. People end friendships with me. I don't get invited to certain events because of this. Like I must be the problem because I don't jump on board with all this kind of uh, rhetoric, you know, these prescribed talking points. And I'm tired of it. And I, I, I don't know why, you know, even this podcast, which I finally did start in 2018 after years of wanting to do it, like, I mean, I had started a YouTube channel describing my thoughts in 2014, and I just let it go because of fear, because of cowardice. I wasn't brave enough to put this voice out there for your scrutiny because I thought, you're going to judge me. You're going to write me off. You're going to think that I'm just some red-pilled, radicalized ideologue myself, you know? And that scares me. Like, I just have this, I I feel this intense desire to belong to something. I, I feel like we all need this feeling of belonging. And yet, so few of us have that. And I do think that actual ideologues, like social movements that prey, they prey on this. You want to feel like you belong with a group, so you have to think our way. And in cancel culture, it's like one-upsmanship in this regard, you know, like who can be even more scrutinizing of people's speech and people's pasts and find reasons to cancel them, who can be even more victimized and own their victimhood in a way as a, as a, as a cudgel, as a weapon to take down other people who can call out somebody for the smallest infraction, the slightest thing. I mean, I know this is not the world, you know, I go out of my apartment and, you know, sit in the sunshine and have a drink with friends and see art and all this other stuff, right? Like the world is big and vast and, When I'm not recording this podcast, obviously I'm doing other things that I actually prefer to do, like my photography and travels. And I just, uh, I always come back to this feeling of uh, frustration and plight against what I'm seeing as a growing problem, which is this kind of cultural delusion. And the delusion is epitomized by this trans activist movement. And so I I often just use that one as what to talk about because it's like, do not tell me that somebody that was born male with a penis who decided at some point to cut off his penis and craft a fake vagina out of rectal tissue is the same as a woman. Don't tell me that. It doesn't make me transphobic to criticize that. It makes me sensible and I guess traditional. I guess I could wear that. I mean, it's, I guess I should just start owning that idea that I'm just traditional on this topic. But you know, we were all bamboozled by this. None of us grew up thinking that 
we had to extend the liberal project of human rights to every centimeter of the planet to include the 0.01% of intersex people. But they were obviously included in the project of democracy and uh, prosperity. You know, like there are no rights, fundamentally speaking, the right to life, the right to water, the right to uh, vote, the right to pursue happiness. Like these basic things, I guess I'm defining them as basic, uh, but I hope you're still with me. These were never being denied to people that struggled with body dysmorphia, and they still aren't. And it makes me really confused what is being discussed here. So um, I have in this project here, this open project, hours of me talking specifically about uh, the trans activist uh, heist on language, on English language, and all the wars that have been waged against conventions, you know. Um, there's just so many examples, and I just, I'm exhausted trying to go through them. And it's not the point. I'm not, I, the thing is that I, I do consume a lot of, like, punditry, like a lot of social commentary, other podcasts and YouTubers that I admire who just really will take every single bit of this. Every single day there's news on this kind of topic, you know what I mean? Maybe I do spend too much time studying it. And maybe it is a fair question. Maybe it's not a pure rhetorical device when people ask me, why do you care? Keith, why do you even care? Who cares? You know, that's often used, I think, to deflect discomfort. You know, like, it's not often that people will ask you that question. If I, if I said something like, um, I wonder how many birds are in the sky right now. Nobody would just be like, why do you care about that? It's not your business. Why do you even care how many birds are in the sky? No. Even though, why, I mean, why would I care how many birds are in the sky? Like, it would be more sensible to ask me that then. The reason I do wonder on that, just real quickly, is because of a, an epistemological reason. What can we know? There are a certain number of birds in the sky, and we can't really know it ever. We can't know. So it like, just highlights our ignorance and our humility that knowledge has limits, despite there being objective truths. And there are objective truths. There are objective truths that science seeks to find. And it has found them. It has found a lot of them. We actually know a lot of shit. Biologically speaking, we know how humans are made. We know that sexual dimorphism is a real thing throughout the animal kingdom, especially with mammals and primates, of which we are. And that a sperm fertilizes an egg, and that sperm comes from the male of the species, and that there is also a female of the species. And it's like, it's like as true as it was for millions of years, you know? And maybe not millions of years, but whenever <laughs> we evolved from 
anyways, that whole train of thought. Don't tell me now in the last five years that a trans woman is equivalent to a cis woman. That a trans woman is equivalent to a woman, a biological woman. What do you want to use here? What do you want to use? And it's happening every day that uh, platforms are taken down. Um, many subreddits that I've followed have been banned from the site. A recent one, Stupid Poll, one of my favorites, has just declared that it's declared a, an indefinite moratorium on all trans discussion because the mods there, the moderators, worry for the safety of their own subreddit and that if people continue to discuss trans topics that it will get banned too. And they're right to fear that because it's been happening. It happened to Social Justice in Action, which is kind of like a Reddit version of libs of TikTok. Um, it happens to anti-hate communities, which was like a ironic takedown of um, against hate subreddits, you know, to mock them. You know, this kind of policing is real. It's real. And it's a travesty. Like everything about the trans activist movement is a travesty. It exploits sick people, number one. It does that. So let's start there. I guess I'm going to get into this. But I'm sorry, dear listener. I I can only stomach this just for so much. And when I feel myself on the breaking point, it's going to be hard for me to persevere. But I'm going to try. Okay. I think about the world and how I want it to be, what I care about. I care about human flourishing. I care about prosperity for as many people as possible. Now, I don't get too boxed down with my empathies. It's impossible to care about every single person on this earth. And it's futile. There's no point in doing that. So don't call me a cold, bad person that I don't specifically care about the uh, Nigerian child caught in a war-torn country, um, you know, a religious war, or in Somalia in a real war, or Yemen, and show me a picture and be like, well, why don't you dedicate your life to helping this person? You know, like, fuck you. Don't tell me where to put my attention and my feelings. I have a lot to deal with, and I can choose how to best balance my life with my concerns versus the world. And I want to be synthesized with the world. I want to be an actualized human that is in perfect harmony, my behavior matching the world I want to see. I don't think I'm too far off. I mean, I'm not there. I'm not Buddha. But I live, according to my principles, by and large, I just don't think I'm, a, I'm as successful as I would like to be at doing it. But in any case, it's obvious and evident that we would care about other human beings, our brethren, but it should be equally as obvious that we would care more about ourselves and our families and our closest friends more than everyone else. I don't know why I'm even needing to mention that, but I do think in today's day and age, 
it's worth mentioning. And it reminds me of a takeaway I, from one of my favorite books of all time, one of my most life-changing books, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Moral, <sighs> The Righteous Mind. He talks about how liberals or leftists will actually care more about strangers than they will about their families. And you see this all the time, like in discussions and even in your own lives, I'm sure. Like people with these kind of convictions will write off their own family members and purport to care about someone on the other side of the planet. And they don't even care about their own family member. And it's just so strange to me. When I when I read that and saw the evidence for that, it kind of shook me as a liberal because I just thought, how much was that true? And it kind of was true. I've done stuff like that. And it made me question myself because it's like, how can you purport to care with such sympathy and grace for every downtrodden person and you won't even cut slack to your relative on the other side of the country who is going through their own problems and sees the world a certain way and bears their own burdens. Like, what do you think ideals are for? You know what I mean? <sighs> Anyways, wow. I, I warned you that this would be a more stream of consciousness episode. I was just feeling too constrained by this idea of making an essay today or even this week. So I'm cutting myself some slack for my own mental health. And I guess that's why I want to be starting here is mental health. And I brought all that up to say, I have complete sympathy for people's mental health problems. I don't want to dance around it, call them issues or whatever. People have problems. Okay. We have problems. I have my own problems and they're crippling to be honest. I deal with it. When I think of a trans person, I first picture somebody deeply alienated from their own body. And it doesn't get worse than that. I'm here complaining about feeling alienated from my friend groups. At least I have friend groups or I have had them throughout my life. To sit at a party and feel alone, lonely, sucks. To be in your own body and feel lonely. I mean, I can't even imagine. It sounds horrible. It sounds so horrible and sad. And so, of course, suicide rates are very high among this group of people. A very, very small group of people it is, but nonetheless. I have sympathy. And I just think, how can I help you? Now, I don't make that my job. It's not my life's work to help the mentally ill. But when I walk around the streets of my cities, having always lived in big cities, and see mentally ill people on the streets muttering to themselves, schizophrenic or high on drugs to the point of, you know, crossing their wires, I have sympathy, but I'm not a social worker and I'm not going to become a social worker, but I would love to vote to for my taxes to hire to fund a mass social work campaign to house and help such people and in the same breath i would love a clinic somewhere probably in the states where people with body dysmorphia can go for real help now 
I say all that because I do not, I am not convinced that the way to help a trans person is to perform intensely drastic surgery on their body. I'm just not convinced by that. I'm not saying that they shouldn't do it, that it's wrong. I'm not judging someone that's done it. I know people that have done it. I'm just not sure if that's the best strategy because from my point of view, maybe this is an awkward analogy, but there's hardware and there's software. And if you have a computer, which is hardware, the body of a computer, and somehow it has a glitch so that on the screen, it only shows like, it shows like, it's like, let's say it's like left justified. The image is like all the way to the left so that half the screen is black all the time and the other half, it's like squished. You know what I mean? That's a software problem that is out of alignment with the hardware. And to propose that the answer there is to cut off half the screen is insane to me. Maybe it's not a fair analogy. Maybe it's too uh, drastic and shaming. I'm thinking this through because, you know, I have sympathy again. It does work. Transitioning your sex, there are people that claim that they're happy having done it. There are also people that claim that it was a massive regret and what were they thinking and why didn't anyone warn them and why didn't no one give them mental health treatments instead of just signing right off and, you know, affirming their supposed gender in their mind. The point is that biology is a real thing and you're not going to convince me to stop believing in it. And the irony of believe the science people saying that vaccines have to be trusted in one breath and then to also say in the same breath that Bio, well, biological sex might not be real. Please. That's, that's too far for me. It's too far for me. And I, the fact that I could be called transphobic for saying that that's too far is an outrage. And you know what? Do it. Call me transphobic for saying that a trans woman is not the same as a woman. Now, insofar as I live in society, I'm very happy to oblige. I know trans people. I hang out with them. They're in my circles. And it's cool. Like, I actually appreciate the diversity. I actually have grown up with diversity as a... As a as normal, as a regular thing. I grew up in California where people were from all sorts of backgrounds and had all sorts of different tastes. And I value that. I like that my friend groups vary in individuality. I'm an individualist. I like unique people with their own stories. So I, I, I will reiterate that anytime I feel <laughs> inclined because it's just important to know that just because you're questioning the activist language doesn't make you hateful. And I'm happy to support adults that feel the desire to proceed with surgery to do it. 
to each their own, you know? Also with their identity, their pronoun usage, you know, look, again, we all know that we have to get on board with this to some degree because to not do so right now would be akin to like, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, still using the N word flippantly. Not that anyone has ever used that in my lifetime. Like, I don't even know why that was a thing. The only people that use the N word are rappers and people in, you know, for me, like I hear it all the time in the black community in New York. And I don't know. It's just, I don't like the bullying. I don't like the bullying. Don't tell me that I have to say certain things. And it's not trans people telling me that. That's the funny thing. It's like, I don't feel bullied by trans people. The trans people I've known and met and the trans people I follow on the internet and the trans people that are artists whose music I like, they don't tell me what to do. They are happy to live their lives and express themselves and leave me alone, which is great. But there's this kind of social virus out there that does somehow infect us all. And I'm not accepted from that. I feel the burden of needing to conform to our new perspective on this topic. And I'll only go so far. I'll do it. I have no reason to like tirade, make a tirade about this every time I'm in public. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't affect my life in a real way. I don't have kids at this point. I I'm not interested in dating. I'm not afraid of dating a trans person. It's actually, let's talk about this topic for a second. I want to talk about homophobia, which is, you know, a real thing and a word that we're using now very casually. I mean, we're taking the phobia part and we're using that very casually. And I don't know if that's cool to do because let's contextualize homophobia. The AIDS crisis happened in the 80s. It was ignored by and large. I, I take the word for it that it was ignored. I wasn't um, cogent at the time. I wasn't cognizant to the world yet. So to me, like, I take it for granted that the AIDS epidemic was a crisis in the gay community that mainstream media and especially Ronald Reagan just didn't treat properly with urgency. Now, when I finally came of age, you know, later in the 90s, I recognize this as a real thing and it was pushed hard in my sex ed and I've always been very careful regarding sex because of this. You know, I was raised in a fearful program of, you know, AIDS frights. Okay. Homosexuality was in the closet, essentially, until this time period. So when you watch these old movies from the 50s, you know, there's like, there's some nods toward homosexuality, like in a Hitchcock movie or here and there, like you can maybe spot somebody's gay and they're coded that way. But like in Hollywood, in media, in common, uh, you know, around in, in society, it was not a thing. It was, it was a thing to ignore. So people were repressing their sexualities and gay culture was underground culture. It was in the bushes. It was cruising at truck stops 
stuff like that. And it was unsafe. It was with strangers. It was at your own risk. The sex was passionate and of the moment and not really protected, you know? I mean, like, it was this very seedy, very exciting, you know? Like, I think it's cool. Like, as a student of subcultures, this is transgressive and interesting. But the point is that there was a fear of this. There was real homophobia. There was a fear of AIDS, and there was a fear of being attracted to men. That many men, even to this day, we have like politicians with these scandals because they're gay and they're homophobic because they're repressing their own latent desires. Homophobia is such an interesting real thing. It's a phenomenon that expresses itself to this day with these kind of scandals where you are, your toxic repression manifests outwardly as hate and is contorted in awkward ways through religion into like, you know, pastors groping children into like sex crimes. And it's outwardly presented as judgment toward gay lifestyle, right? How is transphobia anything like that? Transphobia right now is just me questioning the trans activist agenda. That's what transphobia is. It has nothing to do with my discomfort around sexuality or gender identity. I don't have any discomfort about it. I'm a grown man. I know exactly what I like. You know, I'm very particular in my tastes. I'm very much out there in progressive circles, partying and traveling. And I hang out with a lot of gay people, a lot of alternative people. And I'm teased all the time that maybe I'm gay because I, I, I circle with gay men. I hang out like <laughs> many of my best friends are gay men. And as an extension, I hang out with all sorts of people in queer spaces. And I'm very comfortable in doing so because I know what I like and it's feminine women. So I take all the jokes of like, well, maybe we'll get Keith one day to, you know, turn or try something out or maybe who knows, like, why is he even at these parties? Like, these are funny discussions that my friend groups have. And now the joke is like, well, maybe I'll get with a trans person. Maybe I will. It's unlikely. It's unlikely because I know that I fetishize female genitalia and the feminine physique. That's what I'm attracted to. Now, I've met and seen online trans girls and women that are very attractive. And maybe I would. Maybe I would. I'm not afraid of it. Like, I'll say the same thing. <laughs> you know, this is very personal. I'll say the same thing to this line of thought that I'll say to gay men. Look, if a gay man seduces me successfully, if I actually do become aroused and interested in gay activity, I'll do it. I would love, I would love to be bisexual. I would love to be shown the light here. And, you know, I, it's not like some hill I'm trying to die on. I don't need, it's not, it's not like I'm afraid to be proven wrong or something. Prove me wrong. 
it's not a belief system though. It's like, it's not being proven wrong. It's being proven that my attraction can be more, uh, wide, right? I'm more sexually attracted to more things. My sexual attraction now is quite narrow. And I think that's true for most people, you know, like basically it's hard to be slutty. It's hard to be so promiscuous that you hook up with everyone because your interests just aren't that wide. Women, I think, especially understand this. It's very rare that you're really sexually attracted to a man. There have to be a lot of things in place to like give into that, to feel comfortable enough, to feel that amount of desire. Why would you be attracted to every man? It's unrealistic from an evolutionary standpoint. It's un it's It makes a lot of sense to me that women are choosy and I kind of feel that way as a man. Like I'm choosy, I'm selective with the women I pursue. So already most women are not attractive to me, let alone trans women. But the point is that it's not like I'm afraid of trans women. I'm not afraid of dating them. I would almost be curious, but I have to tell you, and I'm sorry if this is offensive to my trans listeners, it is a bit icky. It is a bit icky to me to imagine a fake vagina. And it is definitely icky to imagine a penis besides my own, which I love. I am not interested in touching other people's penises. They are a turnoff. They are a literal turnoff. So there's, you know, there's language in the in the trans activist space of like, don't be um, you know. Don't reduce somebody to their genitals. That's dehumanizing. Love the person. This is language by smarmy people to get laid. It's not going to work on me. I don't know who it works on. I, I mean, look, if there's a generation of Gen Zers coming of age now who are being told all this that think, okay, maybe I should just try and jack off my girlfriend because society says that I'm hateful if I don't do it, fine. I mean, that sounds a bit traumatizing in my opinion, but I bet that's happening all the time right now. I really bet that that's happening, you know, <sighs> fine. You know, if girl dick is a thing, I don't really care if it's a thing, if it's a, it's a subculture, you know, I was, I was a part of a subculture growing up. I dyed my hair blue and red. I bleached my black hair, yellow, white, and then put dye in it and then put gobs of gel into it to make it really spiky into these individual punk rock spikes. I wore garish outfits to school every day as loud and polka dotted and striped and terrible as I could because I, it felt rebellious and I felt like I was making a statement that I refused to be, you know, pegged in to a you know, some phony system. That's kind of how I saw it. My parents thought it was a phase. And you know what? They were right. It was a phase. And by the time I was at university at Berkeley, I couldn't stand the fact that my converse were red. Like I had to, like, I am now someone that dresses in muted tones and I can't even really get on board now with like Hawaiian shirts and the amount of color that's being reintroduced culturally. I'm very happy with Berlin sensibilities of a black and white and gray palette 
anyways, I respect fashion. I respect, um, I respect counterculture. And I think that that's what this is. If people want to play with their sexuality, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. If they want to play with identity, that's fine. It's great. Actually, it's cool. It's cool to invent this kind of stuff, but it ain't real. Don't tell me it's real. And don't tell me that the cure for it is to mutilate the human form. There is nothing more real than your body. It is as real as it fucking gets. When you feel pain in your body, that's all there is in the world. That's it for you, your pain. When you feel pain in your mind, I've been there. It's called depression. You don't think I've thought about suicide? Don't scare tactic. You Don't use suicidal people as your pawn in your political movement. That's wrong. And I resent it. And it makes a mockery of mental disorders. People that think that they're in the wrong body are very confused. Now, some of them, I take it as a given... I don't know, but I do assume, look, transgender, transsexuality, transgender is new. Trans, like there've been cross-dressers, there've been transvestites. That's what we used to call transgender. Transsexuality is not new, right? Like there have always been transsexual people. And that's, it, it proof, it's proof to me that there, it, this is a real thing, but the numbers are skyrocketing now. They're skyrocketting. And interestingly, they're skyrocketing a young, among young women, young girls. This is a male issue predominantly, historically. Men thought they were women. That's how it's been most of the time. And when you think about like birth defects, and I know that's like a kind of harsh word, but let's just call it what it is. If you're born with like a micropenis or if you're born hermaphroditic and it's indeterminate, you know, like Malehood is like, let's be honest, it's kind of embodied <laughs> in the phallus. And without a distinct phallus, maybe it's easier to present female, to present as a girl. So I do think, you know, there are all these stories of doctors like assigning at birth. Um, you know, that phrase assigned at birth is something I, you know, I take some issue with. Your sexuality is not assigned, it's observed. But there are cases, there are fringe cases where it has to be assigned because it's indeterminate. Now, again, this is such a small number of people, but it's real. And I'm happy to identify that as real. But the thing is that, you know, in general, the distribution curve of men and women is different for all things. An example, women and men have the same average intelligence. Men and women are the same intelligence. But the distribution curve is different so that women tend to be like more typically intelligent and less intelligent, whereas men tend to be more extraordinarily intelligent or less intelligent. So the smartest people in the world and the stupidest people in the world tend to be men. And that's true for almost everything. There's more of like a radical distribution among men. So when you think about, you know, serial killers, mostly men, criminals, mostly men, psychopaths, etc., including these kind of um, mental illnesses. They're mostly men. They're not all men, obviously. 
but it, it goes to show the interesting uh, effect of culture and nurturing here that women are more sensitive to all this signaling now that maybe what's wrong with them when they're depressed and spending all day on TikTok is that they're in the wrong body and they're really boys. So that's interesting to me because if it was truly this situation where, you know, now that we're talking about it, more people are just coming out because that's an argument that's being made, then it would be more men coming out based on the evidence we have. But it's not more men coming out. It's more women I think being conned into thinking that they're boys and look, some are, and I know of some, and this is not to lambast those people. If I'm talking to you and you have transitioned to a boy, I have all the sympathy and encouragement and excitement for your life. I really do on an individual basis. If that's something that you've come to a decision on, I support you. I don't support a society signing off on this without due diligence, without therapy, without talking it through. It's not the job of me the medical industry to just rubber stamp, affirm people's identities. That's not the job of science and medicine. It's the point that Jordan Peterson makes in this documentary, What is a Woman? Which is what I meant to talk about today more specifically. Suffice to say, there's this documentary called What is a Woman? And it's worth seeing. It's worth watching it, I think. And Jordan Peterson is a, an intellectual worth listening to. I wanted to say that because I've been afraid to say that for so long. It's, the, it's a name that's divisive for people. It's this lightning rod name that people have prejudices against. Supposedly open-minded, loving people have these intense hatred prejudices toward a very significantly helpful man. And it's shied me away from ever doing a podcast about him. It's, you know, made me afraid to mention it on dates or even with friends because people judge it. People are judgy. And it's the people that think they're not that are the most judgy. And I guess that's just what I fucking hate. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson makes this point in the documentary as well that, you know, gender is not the most helpful word, especially if you're going to conflate them together, which people are now doing. Like at first we were told that sex and gender are different and I'm on board with that. They're different words around the same topic. So it's really obvious to me. It's really easy for me to buy the fact that sex is biological and gender is socially constructed. That's fine. But now they're being conflated back together so that trans women are saying that they are women, that they're biological women, that <sighs> there's a clip. I guess I'll play it. Veronica Ivy. This is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Thank I'm going to say from the top, because I've noticed this happens in every conversation. Every time you bring up trans rights, or if you have a discussion and you say trans, people tense up. I understand why. We live in a world where now there are people who are so transphobic Supposedly. that it makes it almost impossible for people who aren't to ask any questions, to have any He's conversations, afraid of being to have any discourse 
that doesn't lump them in with transphobia. And so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you're joining us on the show to talk about this. It's been it feels like one of the biggest issues in America, yeah. and yet no one can seem to talk about it. So let's start yeah. with your journey. Um, I wonder why. You've competed at some of the highest levels yeah. uh, in sports. And, you know, as your hoodie says, sport is a human right. That, that, is, that is what you believe in. Talk me through... Not the most strong premise. Talk me through just a little bit of, of, of why you believe fighting for transgender athletes to compete in the categories they'd like to in sport is so important. So it's a fundamental tenet of, like, the Olympic movement that sport is a human right. So in their Olympic charter, in their fourth fundamental principle of Olympism, they say participation in sport is a human right, and they mean that at the competitive level. Mm -hmm. So th this issue, people like to say that it's a complicated issue, and I don't actually think it is. I think it's very simple. Of course It all don't. boils down to, do you actually think that trans women and intersex women are real women and are really female? What does that mean, not? real women? And if you do, it's very simple. Just stop policing who counts as a real woman, because this is... These bullying tactics, you know, like, didn't you say that we're women? Didn't we already convince you of that? We're women, right? So why would you care now? A history of racism built into it over the years. Racism? It's not an accident that the intersex athletes who get singled out are women of color from the global south. Oh my God. Because who gets singled out for scrutiny is based on white women's conceptions of femininity. And that's being weaponized against trans people too. So it's a fear of protecting the fragile, weak, cis, white woman from the rest of us. So, so. You know, this applause, the applause like made me really <laughs> cringe. Cause I just think like, she's just saying these platitudes that are just such propaganda. I mean, it's a political speech, which is fair enough, but I, I just don't know why we have to all be on board or else be called bigots which I appreciate. So let, let's try to break them down. This is where I wanted to get to. One thing that confuses me personally is it, it, it seems like we have discussions about who should participate in which category and how. You know, on the face of it, it seems simple, as you say. You know, if somebody identifies as a woman, if they're transgender, they can compete against women who were born biologically, and, and then if not, then not. But then there are many who would argue who are not transphobes there are many who who's born really careful women who say but you have an unnatural advantage over me and that makes the sport unfair how do you how do you respond to that yeah there's lots of ways you can respond to that so the first is the the very language of you were born and i'm not biological somehow like i don't think i'm a cyborg so like this idea that uh. like, oh, you're not a biological woman well i am a woman that's a fact I am female, so all my identity records, my racing license, my medical records all say female, mm -hmm. right? And I'm pretty sure I made a biological stuff, so I'm a biological female mm -hmm. as well. Okay, that's what I wanted to get to. Do you buy that? Like, there was a way for us until this very moment to at least separate trans women from what we were calling biological women. And of course, this whole debate of TERFs, trans-exclusionary, biological, or radical feminists, it's like, this, there's this, this is a real debate. Where do you draw the line of inclusion for trans women? And, you know, I'm not obsessed with inclusion the way some people are, so 
it's not that big of a thing to me to make sure that everybody is inclusive and included. That's unrealistic. It's just plain and simple, not the world we live in. The world is more cutthroat than that. You know, you can't include everyone into your polyamory. You can't include everyone into your biological family. You can't include everyone into your office. You can't include everyone into your life. End of story. So this idea of inclusion is like way fetishized, way too much fetishized. But now this trans athlete is demolishing our very idea of what a biological woman is. And she's using this bullshit argument like, I am made of biological stuff. I'm not a robot. So I'm also a biological woman. It says I'm a woman right there on my license. I've had a sex change, even though I'm still, I still have a male skeleton and larger feet. And even if I take uh, estrogen and reduce my testosterone, like I'm a woman. So I should be allowed to demolish every female record in athleticism. That is so slimy. That is such a slimy argument. And I I resent it. I mean, fine, make the argument. But I warn you, dear listener, to not necessarily fall for it. You know, I'm not in athletics. It's not like, I mean, why, again, Keith, why do you care about this? Like, how does this affect Keith? Trans athletics does not affect me personally at all. But the mind virus, this contagion of feeling the need, this ideology, this ideology is so, this is COVID. This is, this is real COVID. This is so spreadable, so contagious and so dangerous. It's actually worse than COVID. You know what I mean? Like I care about this more because it, I can really see it taking real effects with COVID. It's like put on a mask when you enter a building or it used to be with with woke ideology it's like put on a fake belief system in order to interact in public that's what it is and that's what i hate and that's why i will continue to to deride this movement it's not because i'm transphobic or dislike trans people it's trans activists and it's activists in general it's woke activists that's who it is it's neo-marxists who see everything through oppression this person thinks she's so fucking oppressed you know she's a well-to-do successful athlete that had a, a presumably successful sex change how are you oppressed you th- i mean look it's almost just like it's very psychological it's very like a freudian somehow like you're taking your pain and trauma that you've experienced in life and you're projecting it on the, onto the world and you're making us all deal with it. That is psychic energy that I don't want any part of. And fuck you for throwing it at me and throwing it at society and bullying us all into your language policing and kicking people like Jordan Peterson off Twitter for dead naming Ellen Elliot Page. You know, it's just like, it's disgraceful. It's insane the amount of power that activists wield culturally. They run basically every institution, every uh, tech industry and uh, business. And, you know, people like me, like true libertarians, free speech people will be like, you know, this is an infringement on Jordan Peterson's rights or anyone's rights on Twitter to say something like men aren't women. You know, people are banned literally for saying that. And then leftists supposed 
people that think they're liberal will say, oh, but it's a, it's a company's prerogative. It's not a government institution. It's a, it's the company's prerogative to kick whoever it wants off based on its own policies. Like what a fucking tool are you? What a, what is the phrase? Um, useful idiot to puppet, you know, the, the doings of a corporation. I thought you thought corporations were fascist. This is what fascism is. This totalitarian idea of like every space has to be filled with this ideology. And it's coming for everything and it scares me. And I've been like yelling about this for years and I saw it happening in academia. You know, I learned about trigger warnings in 2012 you know, microaggressions, like these things were, have been gestating for a decade and it's hard to try and stay silent on it. It hurts me. It hurts my soul to be quiet about this stuff. And it's like a bad look. I'm not proud of like venting like this to you, dear listener. I don't think, I don't think it's sexy. I don't think it's cool to like get all worked up about this stuff, but it's, it's so outrageous. And yet this idea of like, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. This has always been a leftist, you know, calling cry. It's always going to be true, but it's used now for falsehoods. If you're not outraged by the amount of black men murdered by the police, you're not paying attention. There are not a disproportionate amount of black men being killed by police. It's been proven wrong. Almost all of this is proven wrong. If you're not outraged by the gender wage gap, you're not paying, like, that's been proven wrong. Like, so much of this is lies that we just take for granted, and I'm the asshole for, like, pointing it out. I get, like, look, if you don't want to care about this, you're probably not even listening to my podcast, right? But, like, if you're still listening at all, I have to hope that you are concerned a little for the well-being of society and the flourishing of as many people as possible. And this ain't it. This ain't it. I'm going to conclude by just doing some more housekeeping on the topic of Jordan Peterson. You know, he recently joined the Daily Wire, which put out the movie What is a Woman? And that was, those two things were my goal of talking today. And I guess I touched on them enough, but... This is a conservative blog with Ben Shapiro at the helm, I think. I'm not a fan of Ben Shapiro. I'm not a fan of conservatism. But they do represent tradition, and I can get behind certain traditions. And, But I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy to be associated at all with something conservative like that. And I'm very unhappy that Jordan Peterson has done so. He had his own platform. He had one of the biggest, you know, Patreons ever. He doesn't need money. I don't understand why he would paywall any of his work behind a conservative publication. It really offends me. And I think I'm not, I'm not as much a fan of him now as I was five years ago or even three years ago or even one year ago. He is a little too angry. He's gotten himself kicked off Twitter. Most of his tirades now are political instead of psychological or personal. And I don't blame him because I'm like feeling the same way. But I just wish he could have been a stalwart, centrist father figure who bore the burden 
of hate thrown at him from leftist media. And obviously it's taken its toll and he's decided to just be conservative now. That's new. That is new that he's like that. But every interview I've ever watched of him, it's like liberals trying to take him down. Like, why are you trying to take this guy down? He's great. He wants to help you. He's on your side. He's against identity politics. He's against, he's against right-wing identity politics. He's against tribalism. How can you hate that? It's such a disgrace that we've like run him to the conservatives. I hate that. And I don't want to be next. <laughs> My values don't align with that. I'm not pro-life. I'm not like pro-big business. I'm not I'm not religious. I don't I don't know what conservative ideals I would have besides like hanging on to sanity. You know, like it shouldn't make me conservative that I think body dysmorphia is a mental health issue first and foremost and that we shouldn't give hormones or surgeries to kids who can't even get tattoos or ear piercings who can't even drink alcohol like if you can't handle alcohol you can't handle ruining your reproductive organs for the rest of your life call me crazy call me a transphobe i don't believe that children should be able to ruin their reproductive life before it even begins personally and I do make exceptions. There are cases, I'm sure, where it should be done. But not to this extent. And it really is an outrage. And you can, you can mock conservatives and conservative media all you want for thinking that, you know, society is crumbling and this is like the degeneracy is really toxic for our well-being. You can make fun of them for thinking that, but it's true. This is not good for society for us to like give up language and to like be bullied by us by a minority to this degree. So I have to say that. I just have to say that. You know, it's like it's not feasible for me to keep that bottled up and just pretend like it's, a, it's not happening and doesn't concern me. The do this is fine dog in the house burning. It's not fine. It's wrong. It's, I think it's wrong. And um, if we just let it alone, then we could let people with real mental issues or real body dysmorphia get the help they need. And no one would care. But we're making this big trendy thing. Now everyone is non-binary. Non-binary doesn't even make sense. There's no, what's, what's, what does that mean, non-binary? You've just created a new binary. Binary or non-binary. If you have a penis and can get an erection, you are a male. If you cut it off and replace it with a fake vagina, you are still born male and you identify as a woman, but you're not female. You are other, I would say. Because a female is a, is, a, is a biological designation and you're not a biological female. You are a trans other or something. And if you're a woman that was born with a womb, I don't care what reproductive difficulties or genetic differences you might have. If you have a womb, you're a woman, which comes with a vagina that works to whatever extent, you know? People have, you know, people make this claim like, oh, be careful, you can't say that if you can have babies, you're a woman, because then what about women that can't have babies? Like, yeah, yeah. There are always these kind of, like, exceptions. 
but that the the exception does not prove the disprove the rule. It just doesn't disprove the rule, and it's like these stupid rhetorical games that we get into. A woman is an adult human female. End of story. And you can dress up as a woman. You can present as a woman. That's fine. But you're presenting as a woman. And you can be an other. And I would be, I'm, my mind is open to like this ongoing dialogue of like multiple genders and stuff. Like, I think it's silly, but it's not my youth movement. It's not my cause. It's not my counterculture. So, you know, I'm, I'm prepared to be called like some, you know, geriatric millennial boomer on that topic. But yeah, that's fine. Create new genders because you're not fully identifying with your gender, but you're the sexist. You think that all men wear blue and all girls wear pink. And if a boy wears pink, he has to cut off his dick. That's sexist. It's silly. It's ignorant and it's regressive. It's backwards. Why would we do that? I'm going to play some Jordan Peterson clips. This first one is going to sum up this thought on gender identity from the movie, What is a Woman? Biological sex, binary. It's been binary for like 100 million years, longer than that. Temperament is not binary. Temperament or personality. So that's gender. Temperament is gender? Well, gender is a not a good word because it's vague. And it isn't measurable. So do we need it? Why can't we just say temperament? What do we even need the word gender for? Well, I don't need it. But what I would say is that people who talk about the diversity in gender are actually talking about diversity in personality and temperament, but they don't know it. You can have a masculine temperament if you're a woman. Maybe one in ten women have the average temperament of a man. And you can have feminine men temperamentally. And it's not that uncommon because the differences between men and women temperamentally aren't that great. There are masculine girls. There are feminine boys. What are we going to do about that? Carve them up? Exactly. And now I'm going to play... This is the last thing I'm going to play for you guys. Um, It's about 12 minutes long, maybe 10. This is Jordan Peterson talking about postmodern neo-Marxism, which is essentially the technical term for wokeism. And... I think it's fair to say that I am woke phobic because this is what I am fearful and hate and have hatred toward is this ideology. And I've tried describing it, but no one can do it better than him. So I'm just going to let him say this. So hypothetically, postmodernism is a reaction to modernism, a critical reaction to modernism. Um, modernism if you think about it in the Enlightenment sense, is predicated on the idea that the individual is paramount, is the proper unit of analysis, is a fundamental reality, is a rational being, although also emotional nature, is capable of independent speech and thought, can uh, act rationally and think rationally, and so that would mean weigh arguments according to their applicability, uh, logic, Um, coherence, um, evidence, change perception and action as a consequence, be reasoned with, um, be validly attributed an independent sovereignty, free will. That's all part of the modernist uh, set of presuppositions. Postmodernists are hypothetically skeptical of all grand narratives that might include all religious narratives, might include 
the claim that there's such thing as a universal hero mythology, for example, um, and might aim at criticizing the grand enlightenment narrative. Um, so postmodernism has often been described as skepticism about grand narratives. Now, the problem with that, as far as I'm concerned, is that I don't really see the skepticism. I see skepticism about some grand narratives, so perhaps there's skepticism about the Enlightenment and the modernist view, humanist, modernist, and religious view of the individual. But what I saw happening and see happening still is that although the formal claim is made that skepticism about grand narratives is paramount, what happens in practice, and also in theory, is that a new kind of narrative is ushered in, and it's one that appears to me to be a not very well-disguised derivative of Marxism. And the Marxist claim essentially is that, or one of the Marxist claims essentially is that history is best viewed as the economic battleground between oppressor and oppressed, between um, exploiter and exploited, uh, between bourgeoisie and proletariat, uh, between owners and workers, and that that's, there's no more important phenomena at the individual and group level than that conflict. Um, although there is a tremendous difference between people in terms of status, I don't believe that that's a particularly useful way of interpreting the world. Um, and I think that the evidence that interpreting the world in that manner can lead to devastating consequences is overwhelming. There are no successful Marxist governments. There are no successful governments that rely essentially on central planning and that are informed by Marxist theory. There are catastrophic failures that are often genocidal. Now, what's happened with the postmodernists is that many of them were, technically speaking, Marxists to begin with, especially the French intellectuals, people like Foucault and Derrida, were card-carrying Marxists often, or certainly sympathetic to Marxist claims back in the 1960s. And when it became evident to everyone that the application of Marxism almost inevitably resulted in tyranny and genocide, it became no longer intellectually credible to promote those ideas as an intellectual. Um, not that that necessarily stopped everybody from doing so. Well, what seemed to happen, what happened as far as I can tell, is that the idea of economic conflict was replaced by the idea of power, that, that the most important element of an individual isn't their individual identity, but the group that they belong to, the racial group, the ethnic group, um, the, the gender, um, the sex, the sexual preference, doesn't matter, some element of group identity, and that the world is best construed as a battle for power between these different groups. And I don't see that there's really much difference between the proposition that History was driven by economic conflict between the oppressor and the oppressed, and the claim that history is driven by power relationships between the oppressor and the oppressed. And I also fail to see how that's not a grand narrative. The idea that, and I also, I, I should also point out that I believe that the idea is absolutely preposterous. Not only is it wrong, the idea that social institutions are essentially 
predicated on power so that if you are striving for power, you're more likely to succeed in a given functional social institution. Um, I don't believe that there's any evidence that that's the case and plenty of evidence, evidence to the contrary because the arbitrary expression of power is actually not a very effective means of attaining uh, status and authority. It's certainly a terrible means of attaining competence. So the degree to which our social institutions are predicated on actual competence, the ability to solve problems that we all regard as necessary problems to solve, um, striving for power is no means to attain competence. And to the degree that our institutions are based on competence, they don't select for power. And people who use power arbitrarily to force other people to do their will are not likely to run stable institutions. They're likely to be overthrown by their underlings, often in a not very pleasant manner. And that's true not only for human beings, but also for, for animals, such as our nearest cousins, say chimpanzees, where, where the evidence has become quite clear from the work of primatologists such as Franz de Waal that tyrannical chimps can attain the pinnacle of power in a chimp given chimp hierarchy for a short period of time, but tend um, differentially to be torn to shreds by a couple of junior interlopers who band together and tired, sick and tired of the tyranny. It's not a stable means of, of, of generating social interaction. And the chimps that DeWall has studied who managed to maintain power or authority or position, let's say, over some reasonable period of time, tend to be more reciprocal and more interactive than their subordinate peers. So they have to spend a lot of time maintaining relationships rather than lording it over others. And it's also the case that none of the successful people I've ever met, regardless of the enterprise that they happen to be involved in, entrepreneurial, managerial, administrative, um, or academic, scientific, or in creative domains that are more entrepreneurial, the people I've met that were most successful and, and perhaps also most satisfied by their success were people who constantly went out of their way to be of aid to their superiors, their peers, and their subordinates. And the idea that it's the desire for power that drives all of us forward is... Um, well, as I said, it's not a credible idea scientifically, uh, partly because the expression of aggression, which has to be related to the expression of power, if power is to mean anything, so it has to be, I'll use my capacity for aggression to force you to do something that you wouldn't do voluntarily. That's a reasonable definition of the expression of power. Um, it's failures, by and large, who turn to aggression to mediate their social interactions and people become less aggressive as they're socialized, not more aggressive. And chronically aggressive children, adolescents and adults tend to be alienated, isolated, friendless, familyless, and uh, criminal slash incarcerated. It's not a good strategy. And so postmodernism shouldn't be allied with Marxism because Postmodernism is hypothetically skepticism about the applicability of grand narratives and then the assumption that grand narratives, but then the assumption comes in that the grand narratives were only stories told by people attempting to justify their um, arbitrary 
grip on the levers of power, let's say, and that leads us into the entire proposition that our social institutions and our ambitions are essentially predicated on the desire for power. And as I said, that appears to me to be not only wrong, but anti-true. And I've been thinking about the idea of anti-truth lately. I mean, you know, if you lie, the best way to lie is to almost tell the truth. And so you know it's false, but it's close to the truth, so maybe you can get away with it. But there are forms of discourse, let's say, or or there are theoretical propositions that are so opposite to reality that they're not just lies. They, they are the opposite of the case. And I truly believe that our functional social institutions are held together by productive reciprocity. They degenerate, when they degenerate, they degenerate, they can degenerate into a tyranny that's predicated on power. But the fact that degenerate institutions are predicated on power is only an indication that they're degenerate. It's no indication at all that that's the central tendency of our most fundamental social institutions. Imagine you believe that. Well, imagine that you believe that it's power. Well, then you're going to be inclined to exercise power insofar as you wish to be successful. And so maybe that's a way of justifying your own power drive. Um, but if you're guilty about that because you think that the arbitrary expression of power is immoral, and perhaps you should think that, then you're going to view your own ambitions, and certainly the ambitions of others, with a tremendous skepticism. And how are you going to move forward with any confidence in your life if you believe that your own ambitions to succeed are predicated on nothing but the arbitrary expression of power? And so I think it's also psychologically devastating. So. Now, post, there's another element of postmodernism that we should discuss too, and that's the idea that, and again, these are vague ideas, that there's, how would, how would we put it? There's also criticisms of the idea of objective truth, and so, Classically speaking, we would draw a distinction between what's real in the world as such, independent of our interpretation, and our interpretation. There are lines of postmodernist thinking, and these are particularly associated with Derrida, that appear to imply, although it's difficult to pin down, that everything is interpretation. And that's part of the skepticism, everything's interpretation, but then what that leads the practitioners of those interpretive theories uh, to conclude is, well, back to power, because that, they sneak this grand narrative back in that way, and as far as I'm concerned, that's just a new justification for old Marxist presuppositions. So, I hope that's clear. It probably isn't, but it's as good as I can do at the moment.